0: Begin a small series on the book of uh, Joel. Joel is in the Old Testament. I'm sure all of us know that. Uh, it's in between Hosea and Amos. So it's after Daniel. You'll find it that way. Um, we'll have three sermons um, on on the book of Joel, and I'll be taking this one, and then fellow brothers will be taking the other two. So what I want to do today is to give you a brief. Introduction to the book of Joel, and then we'll focus on chapter 1 itself. Uh, can we rise up as we read Joel chapter 1? The words, uh, the verses will be up on screen as well. It's Joel chapter 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders, give ear all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it, and let your children tell their children, and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you dungas, and weep, and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth. And it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my wine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up. The oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O wine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The wine dries up, the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm and apple. All the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld, from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. is not the foot cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God. The seed shrivels under the clods. The storehouses are desolate. The granaries are torn down because the grain has dried up. How the beasts groan, the herds of cattle are perplexed, because there is no pasture for them, even the flocks of sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I call, for fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and flame has burned up all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pan for you, because the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. May the name be glorified, you can be seated. Father God, we want to thank you a lot for your word uh, that serves as a timely reminder a lot of the fact that you are faithful to your covenant even when we are unfaithful, and Lord, and that you will work in our midst in history to bring us back when we go astray, a lot. And as we open our ears and our hearts, we pray a lot, that your Holy Spirit will impress your message upon us this day. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. As um, you know I, I said at the intro, Joel is one of the the minor prophets um, when we say the minor prophets because of the length of their writings are smaller than the major prophets that's why we call them the minor prophets and Joel was a prophet to the people of Judah the the meaning of the name Joel uh, since we have a Joel in our midst, he might know, but Joel means Yahweh is God. Um, And interestingly enough, that's a very common name in Israel. We see a lot of Joels in the Bible, in the Old Testament especially. And the only thing to separate this Joel from the other Joels is the name of his father. So we do not know much about him. We do not know when he wrote this book because there's no mention of any kings or any wars or any foreign nations. From his description of the temple and of the worship that was happening... Most uh, scholars will date it to around 500 B.C., which is after the exile, so after the people of Israel came back from the exile. And there's also a chance that he was associated with the leadership, with the elders, and the priesthood because of his familiarity with them and the temple rituals. But when you read the book of Joel, what we discover is that he's true to his name, his message is a prophetic imperative that focuses only on the glory of Yahweh, whom he serves. And he's merely a mouthpiece. It says, The word of the Lord that came to Joel, and we know nothing more about him. And we look at the motivation for his message, as we read from uh, verses uh, in chapter 1. It is a locust plague, perhaps it was a single plague or there were multiple plagues, that led to severe famine in the land of Judah. Now what are locusts? I think we have all heard from a young age about locusts because they are so prominent in the Bible especially in the Old Testament. But interestingly enough locusts are certain species of grasshoppers. Um, And in their normal stage they are solitary uh, grasshoppers. But in conditions of drought followed by A rapid race in vegetation. What happens to these locusts is that um, they go crazy. So basically what happens is uh, the the hormone serotonin acts in their brain to trigger what we call a swarm phase. So all these locusts come together and then they fly together to the place of vegetation and they can travel great distances and they consume most of the green vegetation, wherever the swarm settles. Uh, one swarm can be as dense as four to 5,000 insects per square meter. And, and they strip all green foliage, that is crops, trees, grass, whatever comes in their way. Um, a, a, a female locust, in the season of their flying, which is between June and, let's say, October, can lay as many as 18 million eggs that is one locust can breed up to 18 million other locusts so the sheer size of the locust infestation is what joel describes as an army so he's not describing a literal you know human army here he's describing an army of locusts and interestingly enough the scientific term for a massive infestation of locusts is, can anyone take a guess? No? It's a plague, it's because it's, it comes from the Bible. So a massive infestation is a plague, and the, the locust which is described in Joel is a desert locust, which is still um, a, a species that, that is seen in uh, North Africa, Middle East, and, and, and in India, for example. Uh, In 2003, an infestation of the desert locust in Africa cost $122 million to clean up, and the damage to crops was $2.5 billion in an infestation that lasted four months. So modern technology and techniques can control locust infestation up to a point. So just imagine if that was the situation in 2003, how disastrous it would be for an ancient society that did not have that level of technology that we have and who are so much more dependent on their crops to survive. You know, Locust plague would have had severe long-term repercussions. The destruction of crops and grass meant that they would have to de- deplete their storehouses. And eventually, once that was over, there was no food left to eat. So they would have a famine and then they would have a drought their cattle could not eat on the pasture. So you can imagine the kind of damage that was done to Judah by this army of locusts that came upon them. And that is the context for which, by which Joel is speaking. A locust plague of historic proportions has hit the people of God. And the people of Judah wonder, is this an historic anomaly? This is an exception because we are supposed to be the blessed people of the Lord. After all, we are the covenant people of God. The people, the nation with whom God has entered into a covenant upon whom all the blessings of God are supposed to fall upon, especially after they have come back from the exile. And the people of Judah thought, that the blessings of God would fall upon them and the judgment of God would fall upon the enemies of God, the nations around them. But Joel, he sees deeper. He's saying in his book that this is a plague that is brought on by God because it's God's response to his people's covenantal unfaithfulness. Because they have betrayed the trust of their Lord by putting their trust in things of the world and making him and his glory and afterthought. The questions that were asked of them, who do you belong to? What is your identity? Where do you lay your trust? What is your hope? All of these questions were answered not by the name Yahweh. That is covenantal unfaithfulness. And therefore, Joel says this plague is God's response your unfaithfulness. In fact, Joel sees this as nothing less than the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, or the day of Yahweh, as we read in the Old Testament, is a time in history when God supernaturally and evidently intervenes in human history to show his righteousness by blessing the faithful and judging the sinners. To show his covenantal faithfulness, it's meant to be a special day for the people of God, which in the Old Testament is Israel and Judah. And and there's an expectation among the people that the day of the Lord is near. It doesn't mean that it's near chronologically, but they await it with expectation because that is the day on which they will be vindicated in the sight of the nations. But over a course of time, false prophets in Israel and Judah twisted this concept, suggesting to the people that just by being a part of Israel a part of the, the, the boundaries of God's chosen people, that was enough to be blessed on that day. They undermined the importance of the people acting faithfully in relation to God and his covenant, in keeping his commandments and seeking his glory. And we read this in Jeremiah chapter 14, for example. He talks about the lying prophets who promised peace in the land even though the people are unfaithful. And when we read Joel, we see the signs of a people who have wandered away from their God the Lord to whom they had pledged their allegiance and devotion, to place their trust in the various blessings of a prosperous life. Yahweh had become a byword in their daily lives. He was a guarantor or a guarantor of a future, the provider of blessings, but he was an impassive, faraway deity who was not needed in a time of peace and stability. Their identity as a people of God was defined, and it was confined to the mere reenactment of rituals that they got from their forefathers, rituals that had been stripped apart of all their spiritual meaning to become mere symbols of conformance and tradition. And so a breach had opened between Yahweh and his people. And into this breach stepped Joel, the man about whom we know nothing about otherwise, to be the voice of Yahweh to his people in their time of need. And his message is a stark and disturbing one. He tells them, do not be mistaken, for this is indeed the day of the Lord. Because the one thing you forgot about the day of the Lord is that the day is His day. It's not yours. It is the day when Yahweh will be vindicated, not those who are unfaithful to Him. And because of your unfaithfulness, the judgment of God has fallen upon you and not upon your enemies. You expected to shout in victory when the nations would be defeated. But instead, they have, your shouts of joy have turned into Christ of alas. The victims of God's wrath are not the nations, but his covenant people who live around the holy mountain of Zion and in the holy city of Jerusalem. Your confidence in the sanctity and the safety and the impenetrability of your holy cities has been destroyed by God himself Because you have violated the sanctity of your God's covenant by being unfaithful to him. But Joel's message is not just bleak, but it's also hopeful. As we come to the latter chapters of Joel, in chapters 2 and 3, he expands the meaning of the day of the Lord Unlike other prophets like Amos and Zephaniah who talk about the day of the Lord, he expands it to not just be darkness, but to be the darkness before the light. This day is intended to remind God's people of his zealousness for his covenant and his glory and his vindication. But Joel says, if my people, if, that, if Joel says about God, that if God's people were to repent, then Yahweh promises that there will be restoration and redemption. If his people were to heed the lessons of this day, when the locusts invaded them, then they could look forward to a future day, a future day of the Lord, when the enemies of God would be judged, but the people of God would rejoice and be blessed. And Joel goes on to say that even before that day, there would be a new experience of a relationship with God that would be possible because of an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And this is Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32. And we read this reference in the New Testament as well. It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. That sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So Joel is saying, there will be another day of the Lord. And on that day, everyone who calls the name of the Lord will be saved. But even before that, there will be an outpouring of the Holy Spirit on all people. Jew and Gentile. And that hope of Joel is what was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 when Peter stood up in the midst of 3,000 people to proclaim that the words of Joel had been fulfilled because the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ had come, the Messiah had died, and now he had resurrected into glory. Therefore, a new age had dawned, bringing with it the promise of salvation for all people, not just Jews but also Gentiles, because a new covenant has been established by the work of of the Son of God, the Lord and Savior of all mankind, who is Jesus Christ. And if you read the New Testament, the day of the Lord is the day of Christ, the day of Jesus' return to the earth in the glory of his Father. On that day he will gather to himself his people, Jew and Gentile, to bless them and to vindicate their hope, but he will judge all of those who have rejected him. And on the day of the Lord, on the day of Christ, the kingdom of heaven shall be established forevermore, and sin shall be no more, And all that remains is the sweet communion of the people of God in his presence. Therefore, Joel's message is one that is not just specific to the people of his day, but it is to the people of both the old and new covenants, to the people who await the coming of the day of the Lord. And his message is one of warning and hope to everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. And as we look at chapter 1, more than a recounting or a history of what what is happening in Judah, we see that Joel is particularly concerned about history in general. His concern, one of his concerns, is that his listeners do not lose the sense of history being made and who is the God of history. So in chapter 1 and verse 2, he asks, Hear this, you elders, give ear all inhabitants of the land, has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? And the expected answer is no. We have not seen anything like this in our lifetimes. A plague of total devastation. You know, we read in verse 4 where what the cutting locust has failed to eat, the swarming locust has eaten. The hopping and destroying locust have eaten. It's a, it's a plague of total devastation. And, and Joel is asking, have you seen this in history? Then he's concerned about the narrative of history, the, the story being passed from generation to generation. In, in verse 3 of chapter 1 he says, he's, tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. More than just stories, he's concerned that the people of God pass on the lessons of history to their future generations so that they know what it means to be faithful to Yahweh and what can happen when they drift apart from him. You know, in a book called The Lessons of History, uh, which was written in 1968, uh, two historians wrote, the greatest question of our time is not communism, and you have to remember, this is 1968, the greatest question of our time is not communism versus individualism, that is, not the East versus the West, it is whether man can live without God. And that same question is asked of every generation. And history... Is a witness to the answer to that question. One of the purposes of Joel is to show God's people how God acts in history because he's the God of history, and to show us that history serves the purposes of God. And we see three aspects of history that he would like us to discover. First is that history shows us the sovereignty of God. Secondly, history shows us the glory of God. And lastly, History shows us the grace of God. So history shows us the sovereignty of God. What Joel makes clear is that history is under the sovereign control of God. We do not serve a Yahweh, a passive God who created the world and left it to itself. Nor do we serve a blind watchmaker who has no control of what he made. Our God is sovereign over time and over history. And nothing happens without his control over it. So to know history is to know of God's working in our plane, in our time. And when we recollect history, it should serve to lift our eyes upward, to, to open our ears to hear what God has to speak to us today, because we know God has spoken to our fathers in the past. And to say that God is sovereign over history means that he is sovereign over both good and bad. To say anything otherwise is to heretically limit the power and glory of God. And knowing that God is sovereign over history is a matter of great hope for God's people. When we read the, the accounts of you know, the martyrs and the missionaries, we realize that they gave glory to God because they know that God is in control regardless whether it is a good time or a bad time. They knew that God was serving his purposes regardless of the situation that they found themselves in. So it's a matter of great hope for God's people. But to know that God is sovereign over history is also a cause or should be a cause of introspection and examination. To seek to know why or why not God has acted in a certain way. And that is the question that the people of Judah in Joel's time is asking. Why us? Why now? And Joel's question in verse 2, where it has such a thing happened, might be answered in the negative. But if they opened the word of God, they would see that it had actually happened before. And we'll have to go back all the way to our Sunday school days. In Exodus chapter 10, Moses goes into the house of Pharaoh to announce the plague of locusts that was to hit the nation of Israel. And then he tells the Egyptians that the plague that is about to come upon them would be of the sort that neither they nor their fathers nor their grandfathers had ever seen. So that plague was recorded as an act of hopefulness and vindication by the children of Israel and Judah. But now, if they were to cast their minds back, they are subject to the same devastation that was caused upon the people of Egypt. And lest they think that this is somehow an accident of history or that God is not intending to treat them like he would his enemies, Joel provides a sober reflection. He says in verse 15 of chapter 1, he says, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. See, Joel is saying, yes, it is God's intention that the locusts have come upon you as a foreign army to lay waste your land, to lay waste to the grapevine and the fig tree, to dry up the staple crops of fruits into mere dust, to shrivel the seeds into nothingness, to reduce the pasture of your cattle into dust. Indeed, as verse 12 says, to dry up all gladness from the children of man. He's saying, this is no mere accident of history, but it is the sovereign act of God, the judgment of God upon his people. And then Joel proceeds to let them know the answer to the question, why? And that why is answered when we remember that history exists. History serves to show us the glory of God. What is the glory of God? The glory of God, if you were to ask a theologian, is the majesty, the splendor, the brilliance, and the beauty of God as revealed to us. It is something that is indescribable, and yet at the same time, we know what it is intuitively. But what does it mean to glorify God, especially for those who are the people of God? And the answer to that is much more clearer in the scriptures. It is to acknowledge the character of God and to reflect his character in our thoughts and deeds. It's also to acknowledge the presence of God in our midst. One of the immense privileges of being found among God's people, whether they belong to the old covenant, or whether as us they belong to the new covenant, is to have the evident presence of God in our midst. So Jesus said, where two or three are gathered, in the context of, um, of, of discipline, but in general, the principle holds that where two or three gathered, there am I in your midst. And in Numbers chapter 35, we read in the Old Testament, God says, Yahweh says to the people of Israel, you shall not defile the land in which you live, in the midst of which I dwell for I the Lord dwell in the midst of the people of Israel to glorify God is to acknowledge his presence in our midst and by acknowledging his presence we are to honor him by giving him our undivided loyalty devotion and allegiance it is to place our trust in him completely it is to find our identity in him and no other When we say the people of God that is the identity of that nation It is to find our identity in Yahweh. And the presence of God in the midst of his people is not to be taken lightly because it is both a source of blessing and of judgment. And that judgment is what overtook the people of Judah because they did not consider the danger of being half-hearted in their allegiance and devotion to Yahweh. And Joel's message to them is that God intervened in history to remind you once again of his glory a glory that you have neglected to acknowledge. And for the sake of his glory, for the sake of his name, God was willing to fight his own people with a foreign army. And when you read Joel chapter 1 and 2, we see the signs of a people who are complacent in their covenantal status and have placed their trust and found their identity in things apart from Yahweh. In chapter 1, we find three distinct groups of people or classes of people being addressed by Joel. And in these three descriptions, we find an indictment of Judah's society at that time. First, we read in verse 5 of chapter 1, he says, Awake, you drunkards, and weep, and veil all you drinkers of wine because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. So first, we find rather unusually the drunkards these are the people who are addicted to wine, who had all their cravings satisfied by drink. But, if you notice, it's not just drunkards. he also says, all you drinkers of wine. It's because in those times, it was common to have wine with your meals, for example. Uh, so, in a time of prosperity, it was not uncommon for a large class of people to be wine drinkers. So the drunkards found their happiness dependent on an endless flow of wine. That's why they are drunkards. But there were many others who were enjoying the good life, as we call it. They were not addicted. But their pursuit was of leisure and pleasure and finer things in life. And in that pursuit of joy and um, happiness and merriment, they found their purpose, their identity and their satisfaction. This was the character of the Society of Judah, And why Joel has placed it first, is very commonsensical, is that when the economy tanks, what is the first thing that goes off people's shopping list? The luxuries of life. So, the drunkards and all the connoisseurs of wine would have been the first to notice and suffer what is happening in the land. Little wonder then that Joel tells them to awake from their drunken slumber and to wail, to cry out instead of the laughter and the merriment that normally accompanied their daily lives. Then he also talks to the farmers in verses 11 and 12. He says, be ashamed, O tillers of the soil, wail, O dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The wine dries up, the fig tree languishes, common granite, palm and apple, all the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. We find the farmers being addressed here because in an ancient agricultural society, farmers were key to the economy, they were respected, and they were often also rich, like those who owned fruit orchards. You know, they planned their crops by season, They built large storehouses and granaries and ensured that the supply of grain and fruit did not cease throughout the year. The farmers' life was not easy, but they were respected. And like we said, some of them were even rich. When Jesus tells a parable of the rich fool in Luke chapter 12, we get a sense of the mentality that would take such people away from God unprecedented success in their efforts which would then lead to the scheming and planning of storehouses to store up their wealth that would then assure the security of their future, perhaps an early retirement, as the man in Luke 12 was dreaming about. And there's nothing in these verses to suggest that Joel is saying that the farmers or the wine dressers are guilty. He's telling them to be ashamed because their shame is to be found in the fact that they had no crop To sell. And their shame was a message to a society that had replaced its trust in God with trust in prosperity, with trust in security, that had forgotten the covenantal relationship with their Yahweh in the light of the supposed security of their wealth, which was stored in their storehouses and granaries. And the famine depleted all their wealth to the extent that there was not a single seed of grain left, either in the farms or in the storehouses. Then finally he talks to the priests and the elders. And we read this in verse 9 and then in verse 13. He says, The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn the ministers of the Lord. In verse 13 he says, Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests, Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. What would the priests have thought when the locusts invaded? When they saw that the farms were being destroyed? When they saw that famine was going to come upon them? Perhaps they thought that come what may, Surely, God will not allow the sacrifices and offerings in his temple to cease. Surely, he would not allow the worship of his name to end. But even the priests underestimated the zealousness of God for his glory to the extent that the doors of the house of God would be shut down due to these locusts. And Joel in his prophecy is particularly concerned with the priesthood and with the temple. And we see an urgent call to the leaders of the people and the priests to bring the nation back into covenantal faithfulness with Yahweh. And the implication there is that they had failed to do that in the time of prosperity and stability. The understanding is that the priests were satisfied in their role as guardians of God's house as long as the offerings were being offered as scheduled, and the rituals were conducted on time. A vital life-giving relationship between the people and the God who dwelt in their midst, and the worship that was supposed to result from that knowledge, had been reduced to the mere formality of organized religion with a class of supervisors who found their identity in being the caretakers of a religious heritage. So to get the attention of the priests, to wake the people up from their spiritual complacency that expected God to bless them, no matter what they did, Yahweh put an end to even the sham worship that took place in his house. You know, when we talk about, over the course of the last couple of centuries, we talk a lot about churches closing, and places of worship being closed. And we are quick to blame every external factor, the changing of society, the hostility of society, the temptations of the world that take our young people away. But let us not forget that sometimes the reason why the worship of God has ceased is because of the spiritual apathy of a people who have replaced their identity of being found in Christ with something else. And that's what Joel is saying to the priests and to the elders of the children of Judah. He says in verse 16 of chapter 1, Is not the food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? You know, what is sad is that in all possibility The joy and gladness of true worship had long ceased in Judah even before the plague. The true joy and the true gladness that comes from true spiritual worship but the people and their priests hadn't even noticed it. The material famine is often long preceded by a spiritual famine. Joy and gladness has departed from the house of our God and God has brought to an end The sham religion that did not glorify him and reduced the covenant to ritual keeping. And we see the overall assessment of the condition of the people of Judah that Joel says in verse 8 of chapter 1. He says, lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. What he's talking about is a young bride whose hopes of the future whose identity, whose trust, whose security, which she had thought was invested in this groom that she was about to marry or had been married, and that groom had been cruelly snatched away a moment after she had been married. And he says, lament, like that person whose expectations of their future, of their security, of their trust, of their identity has been snatched away even before they had a chance to experience it. Such was to be the condition of the people of Judah, who had forsaken their covenant-keeping God and had loved someone else. So God took away their luxury. He took away their worship. He even took away the very essentials of life. Was that to be it? Were the locusts to be the end of God's heritage? in the land around the mountain of Zion? And that's where we see the third aspect of history. And Joel's answer is an emphatic note because he says that history is a record and a promise of the grace of God. The grace of God to restore his people back into fellowship if they return to him. See, Joel's message is not just one of judgment. It is of judgment that is followed by the promise of restoration. Restoration back to the living, vital, and blessed relationship that they shared before with Yahweh. And such restoration does not come as a matter of course. Instead, it has to be preceded by repentance from sin. So we note in verse 5 his call to awake and wail. In verse 8, to lament. Then he says to mourn to fast, to call a solemn assembly. He's seeking for the people of God to repent and have a penitent or repentant heart to acknowledge their sinfulness and the fact that their unfaithfulness had broken the relationship that existed between them and their God. He calls them, he asks them to cry out to the Lord in verse 15 and to call out to him in verse 19 to throw themselves at his mercy. You see, restoration is not a result of repentance. Lest we think that what happens is that when we repent, we are guaranteed restoration. That is true, but we keep forgetting an important thing. Repentance is the confidence that a faithful, covenant-keeping God will take back His people because it is in the character of God to be faithful to the terms that he has established. He is faithful even when we are not, because he cannot act any other way. See, restoration is not a result of repentance. It is a result of God's grace to our repentance. So when we turn to chapter 2, verses 12 to 13, he says, yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in covenantal, steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Joel is saying that true repentance is not a display of external sorrow like the high priests in Jesus' time who were quick to rend their garments, but internal, heartfelt contriteness. And true repentance falls upon the feet of the Lord because we recognize that God is faithful to forgive and restore. And that famous verse in Joel chapter 2 and verse 25, you know, it says, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I send among you. We often read You know, quote that verse. You know, when someone had a business go bad, for example, or something happened, and we quote this verse as a promise, but what is it promising? It is promising that the years that we wasted away because we were unfaithful to our God will graciously be restored back by God himself. That is the promise of God. That our foolishness, that our Inadequacies in living up to the relationship that He has established with us and the waste that flows from that will even be restored by, by God Himself as a result of our repentance and restoration. It's our faults that the locusts came, but it's God's mercy that the years will be restored. In verse 27 of chapter 2, he goes on to say, you shall then know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there's no one else and my people will never again be put to shame. He restores the exclusive relationship between him and his people. He restores the knowledge of the fact that he lives amongst them. And then in verse 32, he says, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Centuries later, when the pouring of the Holy Spirit that had been prophesied by Joel came to fruition on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, Peter stood up in the midst of 3,000 people who were convicted of their sins, and they asked, what must we do to be saved? And he said, call on the name of the Lord, because everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The name of the Lord is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who fulfilled the old covenant in faithfulness to his father. Unlike the people of Israel and Judah, the Messiah fulfilled the covenant in all faithfulness, and he inaugurated a new covenant. He came into this world, and he divided history into two parts, two ages, the old and the new. Charles Spurgeon said, the birth of Jesus is the grandest light of history the sun in the heavens of all time. It is the pole star of human destiny, the hinge of chronology, the meeting place of the waters of the past and of the future. The question before us today is, what shall we do about Jesus? Because there's no other name under heaven by which we shall be saved. No other name to call. He's the focus, the purpose, and the consummation of all history. We remembered in our meeting in the morning, that a day is coming when every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The day of Christ, the day of the Lord is coming when he will return in glory to gather his people unto himself and to judge the nations who reject him. And the question to all the people of this generation is where do you stand in regards to the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you called on his name? But to those of us who are saved, who claim to be members of the New Covenant community of God, we have to ask ourselves, what is the state of our relationship with God? Have we become complacent? Where do we find our identity? Where do we place our trust? In Him who bore our sins on the cross, or in our wine, in our storehouses, or in our religion? Are we still invested in the glory of God? Let us not fool ourselves. God is still zealous about his name and his glory. The God of Joel is our God. He is unchanging. He is present in our midst. And that presence is both our hope and our conviction. If we do not glorify him, let us not presume that he will not fight against us. Because he knows that in, our glo- in his glory is our good. You know, John Piper said, says that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. In his presence is our everlasting joy. Even if we forget, he does not. Even if we are unfaithful, he is not. And for our sake, he might fight for us by fighting against us. As the hymn writer said, you know, There's no truer explanation of our condition than to say, prone to wander Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the Lord I love. Joel's message is that throughout history God has used history to prompt his people of both covenants to return to him when they were unfaithful. Maybe not become the people who need to be woken up from our slumber to once again return to Yahweh who is the God of all history let us pray Father God we want to thank you for your word a lot that is so rich with meaning a lot that has application not just a lot for the time in which it was written but also for your people today we realize a lot the great risk the great uh, sacrifice it took to establish your covenantal relationship with us a through the sacrifice of your beloved son on the cross of Calvary and we realize what a great privilege it is to say that we are the people of God amongst whom God lives in our midst. And yet we realize, Lord, that we are prone to wander, we are prone to leave because we, our eyes are so easily attracted to the pleasures and desires of things that are not you. And we find our security often in, in, in materials that can be wasted away at an instant's notice, Lord. And we realize a lot that you are graceful and merciful enough to bring us back even when it seems that we are in the midst of disaster. But we pray a Lord, that it will not come to that, that we will be found faithful and that we'll seek zealously to God your glory and to honor you in all of our lives in the midst of this community, that our testimony is that we are the people of God and that we find our trust and identity in no other. And we look forward to the day of Lord, when our Savior Jesus Christ will return, to vindicate our hope and to judge the nations, Lord, with expectation until that day, Lord, we pray that You'll take our heart and seal it, and 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 continue, Lord, to bless us and be in our midst. In Jesus' name, we ask.